one of the occasional but big decisions that come up in every creator journey is the rise of new platforms. The basic fact is platforms come and go all the time, but some platforms have much more staying power than others. It is beneficial to be early on a platform that rises because that's where you mint new social capital. Uh, for those who haven't read Eugene Wei's Status as a Service essay, I highly recommend it, even though it's a very, very long read. But that basically charts out the thesis that you mint money like you mint uh, money on blockchains by being early. And social networks are a form of blockchain. But I'm not here to talk about blockchains. I'm here to talk about Clubhouse. I think that uh, I was wrong on it uh, in 2020. I was definitely cautious, but I was more trusting the judgment of others when I probably should have heated my own gut. And I think that asynchronous media like podcasts, <laughs> like the one you're listening to right now, is probably superior to live. But there is a place for live and Clubhouse captured the moments and then fumbled it. Um, so here's a analysis of Clubhouse from the competitor and also leading that into a broader discussion of social networking and content. Can we talk about Clubhouse? So you were there during the, the uh, peak of Clubhouse kind of taking off, right? Yes. And uh, I can, can we talk about that moment in time of like, are you guys sitting there uh, saying, how do we miss this form factor? Or, hey, we need to get on. Because everyone, I mean, LinkedIn launched a Clubhouse competitor uh, and Facebook obviously did as well. And Spotify, you guys bought the green room, right? Yeah, locker room. Locker room, which became, yeah. And so can we talk about that moment in time and what you saw that uh, Clubhouse captured and maybe what was uh, ephemeral about that not not in a very literal sense. I guess all the audio on Clubhouse was ephemeral. But like, what has led that to not being a lasting form factor in your mind? Yeah, sure. So so what happened was Clubhouse took off. This was during the pandemic, right? Everyone was, and it was early pandemic. Everyone was trapped in their homes. You know, it was still that moment where you don't even know if you're like, can I go outside? Like, what what am I doing? You know. <laughs> and so Clubhouse was great because. It's, it almost seemed like every night there was some amazingly rich, interesting conversation happening on Clubhouse. And you were home anyway, so why not listen and maybe join? So really, really compelling. Uh, awesome experience too. Great product experience. They they totally nailed uh, the format out of the gate. At Spotify, what we said was, actually, we believe in on-demand. That's been Spotify's whole business. Hey, let's take radio, which is synchronous and live and let's actually make it on demand because we believe sort of on demand is 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 the future of media and the internet has proven that on demand is super valuable right netflix all these platforms have proven that on demand is great but you know what here's this app clubhouse and it's clearly doing something right what if what if audio is going to be live what if live is a format that can work for audio and so what we said was we need to have a bet here right like in the chance that this actually works out we have, we have to place a bet in this space because if, if we dull and clubhouse does work out in this format, this live synchronous audio format does take off. Um, we will have been so mad at ourselves for not taking the chance and taking the risk. And so, uh, and so, yeah, we did make a play in this space. So is it fair to say you guys were skeptical of the long-term potential of this, just given your inherent, like, uh, synchronous versus asynchronous biases that existed internally and in what you had seen or uh, like how much how much paranoia is at this moment versus calculated risk of chips on the table? 
I mean, it probably sounds convenient in hindsight, but but yes, it is the truth that we were like, we weren't 100% convinced this was going to work. It was, part of it was a hedge. You know, I think to, I think that's kind of the question you're asking. But part of it was also, hey, can we do something new here? Can we do something interesting? Can we put the Spotify spin on live audio and leverage our strengths in sports through the ringer or leverage our strengths in music, obviously through Spotify, or find new ways to monetize live that hasn't been done before and uh, and by the way, I think that I think they're still doing this, and they've and they've had some success. Um, but I think the you know there was also for for all the potential excitement about what we could do to innovate on it, part of it was also a hedge and 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 saying like, hey, we're not sure. Just like synchronous live audio is that um, uh, work will work that well with affecting effectively like an advertising model. And the reason for this is. You know, back to, we were just talking about advertising and podcasts. For advertising to work, you need a critical mass, right? You need a critical mass of consumption of that format to generate enough demand and attention for an advertiser to put down something meaningful. And if you think about live as a format and just like the math behind it, you're just never going to get a critical mass compared to an asynchronous format because with live, you're asking a bunch of people to be available all at the same exact time. And the internet just doesn't work that way, right? This is the beauty, beauty of asynchronous on-demand content. This podcast we're recording right now, people, you know, hopefully for both of our sake, people will be consuming this for, you know, on their own schedules for, you know, for years from now, right? Generations. Yeah, exactly. Generations ago. Yeah, and every yeah, time our, they do. Our grandkids. Yeah, exactly. I agree with, with that. And it's sort of like, take it's constraining what makes the, internet like infinitely scalable in in certain ways and it's taking it back to like uh talk radio radio Uh, yeah yeah we're like sort of going back in time and uh and so um i I totally get that i guess does that make you skeptical about like be real for example which is kind of doing something similar that it's taking this moment in time and yes there's not as much live elements of it only I think there's two ways to think about it. Number one is maybe B-Rail's current format can work if they're able to innovate on the business model, right? Maybe there's a business model that works for their format that we're not thinking about, right? I don't know that it's an advertising play because again, like with the current format of B-Rail, you're only really interacting with that app once a day. It's that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I miss days all the, all the time. Like I'm always missing days. Um, so I don't know if through that format, they can get enough scale for like the traditional social network business model. Maybe there's another business model we haven't thought about. I would say on the flip side of that, going back to the Amazon example, the Spotify example, I think more likely what Be Real needs to do is they need to ladder into something new. They've taken, they've built something really compelling and they've, they've been able to generate a critical mass of people that interact with their format and come back to the app almost every day. What can they do from there? What is the new format or the new, you know, the new opportunity? that they can ladder into. And by the way, the original format doesn't maybe never goes away. It's always there, but there's, there's a new thing. And by the way, all the great social networks do this, right? Instagram was the, the scrolling feed. Then we had the stories. Then we had the reels. Like, I, I just think that's what an evolving product needs to do to survive. It, it's, I don't know if the current format can sustain, um, unless they, unless they ladder into the next opportunity. Yeah. What, what do you think? Do you agree? I mean, if you look at all these apps, like they are able to level up and embed other things and reasons to keep coming back. And 
uh, Snapchat was a, uh, you know, it was always joked about as like a dick pic app or like a sexting app back in the day. Right. And obviously it's so much, they were able to go do so many things. And so these things that, what is the Chris Dixon quote, uh, that like, what, what will, will be the future starts out looking like a toy or something. And so yep. I totally, um, I don't know. I don't want to presuppose any of it. Totally. One of the questions I want to ask you as well was about uh, TikTok specifically. And you wrote uh, something about recommendation media and uh, after Kylie Jenner uh, kind of pushed back on Adam Seri's, um, hey, we're not going to just follow your friends anymore, uh, or you're not just going to get access to your friends, but we're going to move more to a recommendation uh, type algorithm. And I think they they backtracked on that a little bit. But can you talk about, you wrote an interesting blog post about that. Can can you speak to your thoughts of uh, recommendation media or recommendation social? Sure. So so if you think about the history of social networks, the, the great innovation of the social network going back to you know, the beginning of Facebook was the social graph, right? Being able to match all your connections in real life and in the digital world to this social graph and then leverage that social graph to distribute content, right? So if you and I are friends on Facebook, I post a photo or a post or whatever, and Facebook uses our social graph to say, hey, Logan should see Mike's content, right? And that was really great for a long period of time for being able to distribute content. But it wasn't that great, right? There were a couple problems with it. Number one, you might not care about what I have. Yeah, we're maybe we're friends on Facebook, but like, Maybe you don't care about what I have to say. And not only that, it gave people that had friend graphs these, um, these, these sort of like guaranteed levels of distribution, right? If I have a thousand friends on Facebook, those thousand friends are guaranteed to see whatever I put on there, even if it's something really, really awful, right? And, and I, and I personally believe that this is the reason that platforms like Facebook a couple of years ago had so much, so many problems with hate speech and problematic content is because they effectively guarantee distribution to everyone on the platform. Then TikTok comes along and they say, eh, we're actually not going to guarantee any distribution. We're going to control the distribution and we're going to use machine learning to do it, to match the perfect piece of content with the perfect user at the perfect time. And we're just going to go for maximum efficiency. So whereas like maybe you wouldn't care about what I would have to post, what I want to post on Facebook, if we were friends. TikTok just can go around that altogether and says, well, Logan doesn't like to look at these types of posts. He likes to see these other posts. And we have an ocean of posts that match these interests. So we're just going to send Logan all of that. And then on the hate speech side um, and like the problematic content, and admittedly, this doesn't mean that TikTok doesn't have issues with problematic content. But if everything is machine learning driven and there's no expectation that somebody just gets this unfettered access to distribution, the platform can just decide what it shows and what it doesn't. And so if it sees a piece of content that's problematic or it's propaganda or it's hate speech, it just buries it. And then it uses machine learning to match it to every other similar piece of content and it buries all of them too. And if, you, if you're one of the users that happens to post that thing, well, guess what? Like you were never guaranteed distribution anyway because TikTok decides what gets distributed. Which is kind of scary though, in a lot of ways. Super scary. Censorship, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like this is much more mainstream to talk about now, but, uh, you know, TikTok's, uh, it, it is a Chinese, uh, or, or the, the parent company is a Chinese based company and has, uh, been reported to have ties with CCP and what gets, uh, shown there, uh, is going to be very different, uh, than, than what would be shown elsewhere from an algorithmic standpoint as well. And so almost when you're entitled to distribution, uh, you can act more like a protocol, right? To go back to the, it's like, hey, 
Our job is to, uh, if you're, if you're SMS and you send to a number, you don't have to necessarily worry about what the content actually says. We're a protocol, right? If you're actually algorithmic in nature and you're making machine learning based deterministic, uh, uh, distribution decisions, then it's far, far scarier, uh, to have that. One, that just is a ton of power to exist to anyone, be that an American entity or a Canadian one or a Chinese one. But two, in particular, when this form factor is uh, is a company coming from a company based in China. 100%. No, it's a real concern. I mean, look, recommendation media arguably actually has a bunch of benefits, right? Um, for the user, uh, definitely for the platform. But it also comes with a lot of scary potential downsides as well. It's like we're saying, censorship. I mean, yes. People can spew really awful problematic content on social networks. Um, but what would you rather have? Would you rather have that or would you rather have uh, a world in which actually a couple of these gigantic corporations basically get to decide what all of us consume and what we don't for the rest of our lives? Yeah. There are clearly risks to both, to both sides. So, so everyone's doing this now, right? Like, so Adam Sarah, you mentioned, came out and said, Hey, Instagram's going to recommendations. Uh, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg said, Facebook's going to recommend, actually he definitely did. Facebook's going to recommendations. Everything is going to recommendations. And, um, and the social graph is basically for all these, for all these massive platforms, like they're kind of, kind of saying, you know what, this actually isn't that affording to us anymore. It's not that valuable. Um, and so I actually have been wondering lately, maybe back to the be real thing. If all of the biggest social platforms of the past decade and a half are moving away from the social graph, maybe this actually is an opportunity for a challenger to enter the space for the first time in the past 10 years, right? I mean, penetrating sort of the landscape of social media giants has been nearly impossible for the past decade, but maybe now there's actually an opportunity and, and maybe it's be real or maybe it's something else uh, that we haven't heard about yet. Yeah, it's uh, the the distribution. I mean, we've seen it in starting different social channels, like the ability to, I sort of think of it as a spectrum on one end is uh, historically, I guess, I mean, you could say text message is, or email, right, is the, hey, you actually don't get an option of whether or not this gets delivered to you. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, the protocol is like, if I have your email, it's coming to you and you can put me in spam or whatever, which is actually an application back to our earlier conversation that exists on on top of the protocol, yeah. but like that's the pipes. And historically, Twitter has been sort of the the force feeding you. If you follow someone, you're seeing a hundred percent of their content, right? Uh, and and on the other end of the spectrum has been TikTok. That you're actually, I, I've I've forgotten that I've followed people. Following people on TikTok is actually kind of like a super it's like, like not a thing. Yeah, it's like it's like a super like of a video or something, right? Where the second you start liking slightly different content then that person, it's like, it's as if you never followed them at all. And Instagram kind of has existed in the middle where, hey, a follower kind of means something because it could show up at the top of a story or uh, I, I guess originally it would show up in their feed. Now it feels like the the story is uh, is, is, is becoming more and more algorithmic of who's furthest to the left. But if you follow someone, you're going to see their stories for the most part, like you can scroll all the way through. I, I'm not convinced if you follow someone on Instagram, like on the feed, you're going to ever, you could scroll forever. And if you didn't engage with my content, I bet you could scroll for uh, hours on end. And if you hadn't engaged with my content, you wouldn't see it. But it's interesting. Um, uh, that dumb pipe of of Twitter, it's obviously getting smarter and smarter in terms of the recommendation algorithm and all of that. And what's 
just kind of an interesting anecdote is, um, and to bring it back to podcasting as well, is when when we got going with this, when I was originally trying to do this uh, and, and figure out what platforms worked and all of that, uh, in starting, I had this captive audience of Twitter that uh, I was trying to port over, right? And the risk in starting early on with, with uh, one, a captive audience that signed up for something, which was my tweets, and then trying to bring them over to something else is, one, when you're, when you're recording your initial episodes or whatever, it's not going to be the quality that you want. And inherently, people aren't going to like, uh, they didn't come for that anyway. And so if, if you start pushing this stuff on them, they're like, hey, uh, I, I, I followed you for jokes and now you're trying to get me to listen to you over here. Like, no, thank you. And so one of the lessons that I learned uh, in this is Twitter being a dumb pipe was uh, a really difficult distribution mechanism because one, everyone was seeing it that signed up for me there. Right. Uh, and so like not only did they sign up for something different, but then I was also force feeding them all the content that uh, I wanted to send out there into the world. And so it was funny. And then the quality of it wasn't very good when we got going at all. And so everyone, it was an interesting learning that like, if I were to do it over again, I probably would have like not published it to Twitter at all uh, for the first month or six weeks or whatever, and just let TikTok, the recommendation algorithm kind of serve as the initial flywheel of getting going. And then once the quality got better, uh, you know, then I would start cross promoting it a little bit more or, uh, or whatever, but it was an interesting sort of launch consideration of when you're just forcing people to consume content versus letting the algorithm drive it. Right. It just, it leads to very different, uh, people's different responses to engaging with that content as well. And so I remember when we initially launched this, there were a lot of people that were very angry with me that this was showing up in their feed uh, on Twitter. They were like, this was not what I signed up for, which is pretty funny in retrospect. Well, what's interesting about Twitter is, you know, they have the option now where you can sort of, um, you can have the chronological feed or you can have the magic, I figure what they call it, the magic feed. And I, I definitely feel like they're, they're getting a little more aggressive with that magic feed. I keep hearing from people that they'll tweet something, you know, the million follow, I don't know, tens of thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and the tweet will get like no engagement. Oh, totally. Clearly it's, clearly it's just being buried now. Like, the, you know. Oh, totally. No, no, they, they're, they're moving much more to the recommendation side of things, which is, which uh, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, again, it leads to all these risks of censorship and control of these platforms, but also it's clearly, I mean, the proof's in the pudding of TikTok as a business and also the engagement uh, across the board here. Like everyone has voted with their feet, be that Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, now Twitter. Everyone's voted with their feet of which one of these is better for the business and therefore which one users engage with uh, more as well. Like we know the answer, right? Now, is the answer a good thing or not? Uh, we can debate that, but it's clearly leading to, there's only one path that people are heading here, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you hear a lot of people say this, like they're, you know, they said when I, when I published this piece about recommendation media, I had all these like angry people on Twitter saying to me, I don't care. You know, I want to connect with my friends. I don't care about, you know, funny cat videos on TikTok or whatever. But the reality is for your point, the data is actually suggesting otherwise. Like Instagram would not be doing this. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't, right? If, if, you, if that's actually true, you're in the vast, vast minority. Uh, and so, I mean, it is, uh, sure, it's leading to, uh, ultimately, I guess, there's this recommendation world. And then there's also this like kind of closed circuit uh, 
friend and family world. And it's clear that the abundance of content that exists in the world is more interesting than your immediate friends and family. I think that's universally true. It is interesting to see these two things di uh, divorce from each other, right? And as that happens more and more, is there going to be more opportunity for uh, uh, chat apps or different types of social apps that are more focused on your your personal group, right? Clearly, the much bigger market is the infinitely scalable world of content that exists out there in the recommendation engines that people follow. But it, as those guys zig, is someone going to zag in, in the other way and start exactly. bringing back this more familial, uh, you know, group? Well, there are like I, I feel like Be Real started this trend, but there are all these I see all these interesting little you know closed circle social apps popping up, right? Be Real. There's another one called. Um, Flash tape, there's, you know, what's that other one? Locket is really big. Um, I'm in this other beta for this this product called uh, Unfiltered. And it's all like super close friends uh, sharing sharing photos that wouldn't really be widely applicable to a large audience. And uh, I don't know, the, 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 to your point, there's something here. It feels like there may be a zag that can break through uh, in this moment in time where Facebook's saying, you know what? We actually don't care about the social graph. We're just going all in on recommendations. Yeah. So that was a clip from the Cartoon Avatars podcast by Logan Bartlett. But um, he makes a reference at the end to how celebrities and professional influencers are almost guaranteed to be more interesting than your real friends. And therefore, because your real friends are real people, they're not going to be as prioritized in your social networks. And I have to highlight, against my will, the <laughs> screenshot essay by Sam Lesson. Uh, I'm not going to link to him directly. I'm going to link to Ben Thompson's analysis of Sam's essay because Sam is an objectionable person. I'll leave it at that. But I want to break down the thesis because this, I, I do think that this is one of the um, very few things that I agree with Sam Lesson on. So there's a digital media attention food chain. Uh, one, you have sort of the pre-internet People magazine era where you have... Um, uh, People magazine where like the celebrities are kind of uh, picked for you and everyone sort of concentrates on uh, what the media decides is interesting. Then content from your friends kills People magazine. That's the early Facebook. Um, that's the people that you know, and that's more interesting than people that you don't know. But then professional friends like Kardashians kill real friends because they're more entertaining, but uh, you get to choose rather than the media choosing for you. And then algorithmic, everyone kills Kardashians. Um, and that's the phase of uh, the social network where Instagram is facing. And that's why the Kardashians are rebelling against Instagram because Instagram realized that they're deprioritizing the Kardashians um, and deprioritizing the follower graph in, in favor of the algorithm. Like instead of recommending content from people who have the most followers, you should recommend the most interesting content, period. And sometimes they're followers, sometimes they're new people. And in fact, that's probably a better idea for engaging new people uh, because otherwise there's no incentive for new people to join. Uh, and then the final stage is pure AI content, which beats algorithmic everyone, uh, the, the AI content that you can generate on your own. So the last part is more speculative, but I still think that this was a broadly correct thesis. In tomorrow's episode, probably the last regular episode of the year, we're going to talk about Moloch and how that relates to the algorithm.